Welcome today to our podcast on unity versus unification. I am Archbishop Brian Putzier, and I'm talking to you here from my office at the United Episcopal Catholic Communion. There is much discussion, some in good faith and some rhetorical, regarding the unification of the Christian Church. This document, and most likely an entire series, will delve into the issues regarding unification. The scope of this series targets the chasm between the concepts of unity versus unification. Unity is the working together for a common good of the church, despite our differences. Unification is bringing the secularized and vastly denominational church together under one patriarch. First, we must look to the history to determine why the Christian faith today is so fractured. The best way to start is to take a 10,000-foot overview of the fractured church today. We will not look at the full scope of denominational churches worldwide, but rather we'll just take a snapshot to make a point. All of these organizations operate with their own canons, rubrics, ethics, and general practices. Some work well with each other, to a limited extent, while others do not play well in the sandbox. That overview should suffice. While there are technically six main branches, Catholicism, Protestantism, Eastern Orthodoxy, Anglicanism, Oriental Orthodoxy, and Assyrians, the number of sects that are actually derived from each of these could reach into the hundreds. As apostolic Christians, we hear and declare the one holy Catholic and apostolic Church of Jesus Christ. For many, this equates to the Church of Rome. But as we can see, the Church is not one, and not dictated by a single patriarch. We must also declare that there are non-apostolic and non-Trinitarian sects. The Christian Church evolved from the singular teachings of Jesus Christ. Upon his death in 33 AD, and over the next 34 years, the Church was immediately divided into four main churches that operated with vastly different liturgies and rubrics. These differences can be seen in the liturgy and rubrics of St. James in comparison to the Coptic elements of Mark in Alexandria. The four main groups of the churches were Jerusalem in 33 AD, Antioch in 42 AD, Alexandria in 49 AD, and finally Rome in 67 AD. The seat of authority for the church originated in Jerusalem during a time from 33 AD to somewhere near 42 AD, and maybe even well after 50 AD, 
there is very sketchy evidence, mainly the Apocrypha of the Acts of Peter and a letter written by Gaius, written probably towards the end of the 2nd century AD, so somewhere around 170 to 180 AD, with unsubstantiated commentary by Origen, claiming Peter was visiting or resided in Rome. It is clear that at least from the Apocrypha that Peter was evangelizing and not actually sitting in power and authority during that period in time. There is no direct New Testament text that places Peter in Rome or acting in authority from a seat in Rome during this period in time. The first evidence of Peter being in Rome was not written until the very end of the second century and is very much debated. At the end of the Gospels, and even in Acts, places Peter in Jerusalem. Paul, in his letters, describes meeting Peter in the eastern Mediterranean during this time. In about 36 AD, Peter and Paul met in Jerusalem, and 14 years later, Peter, Paul, and James the Just met in Jerusalem, which occurred approximately 50 AD. Paul also writes that Peter and James the Just co-share operations of the church, which is a very interesting point. During the meeting in Jerusalem, Peter apparently gives the seat of full authority to James after controversy over differences of opinions regarding the Jewish Christians versus the Gentile Christians. The first verifiable reference to a bishop actually sitting in Rome as a seat of power was Linus in 67 AD. Modern scholarship holds that Rome did not yet have a single ruling bishop at this time, and the Roman Church had not yet emerged as Western Christianity's administrative center. With the conflicting reports of the early church fathers as to authority and no real biblical evidence of Peter's role or lack of one in Rome, this substantiates the claims that Jerusalem was actually the seat of authority during this first period. Muddy the waters even further, most of the information regarding Peter is not listed in the Gospel or the Book of Acts. Much of the information regarding Peter is found in cryptic and esoteric writings that occur 100 to 200 years after the death of Peter. Much of the information regarding Peter and Rome comes from the Apocrypha, which are denounced by many as totally unreliable, from the letters and legends written by various authors, including Origen. 184 to 253 AD, with no reference to biblical evidence. In many of the texts, it is stated that Peter may have been in Rome to evangelize and preach the gospel, not to sit in power or authority. To the best of biblical research and knowledge, Peter was on the run from Roman and other authorities in fear of his life. The next we hear from Peter is his letters from prison in Rome when he was detained. In the book of Acts, there are references to Peter exerting influence over activity of the apostles. He presided over the appointment of Matthias, yet there is no word that he exerted power. 
because Matthias was chosen by the apostles as a group. Peter's equals, who also voted, and hence Matthias was chosen by lots. Peter stood to preach at Pentecost, but no indication that he asserted power over the apostles. He served as an advocate before the Jewish court in Jerusalem, but again, he did not announce power authority over the apostles or the church itself. The most power he ever asserted in the biblical text is he sometimes acted as a judge for disciplining those who erred in the early church. Probably the most damning evidence resides with Paul during his known and proven time in Rome, which was about 60 to 62 AD, and many of his letters and epistles, which he wrote about 57 AD. Reportedly by Origen and others, Peter was assumed to be in Rome for nearly 25 years, which would be the same time Paul was there, and when Paul's epistles to the Romans were written. Yet Paul never once mentioned his fellow apostle, or even once in any of his documentation. Bottom line, if we stick 10 theologians as researchers into a room, we'll probably get 10 different interpretations regarding the fractured operations of the early church and the power structure of the stated operations. Why is the rough timeline of church history important? The importance of the meeting in Jerusalem between Peter, James, and Paul is absolutely the key. The main topic of discussion was the differences in the treatment of the Jewish Christians with respect to the treatment of the Gentile Christians. This story shows the distinct fracture of operations of the early church and resulted in much friction between Peter and Paul. This may have resulted in the so-called Apostolic Council of Jerusalem, which is very validly recorded in Acts 15.7 by James, where Peter apparently gave up what many believe was his power and control of the church. The decision was made by a group of equals that Peter must look to the need of the circumcised Christians and Paul would take over 100% work and seek the uncircumcised. This is the very first distinct reference to a split in the church. If we hold these historical references as having credibility, then we must accept that denominationalism was inevitable from the very onset of the faith. The final proof we have of the fractured church existing from the earliest days of the faith is well described by the sharp divisions that occurred during the Chalcedon Council in 451 AD. Even earlier was a disagreement over the nature of Jesus with the Church of Alexandria during the Nicene Council in 325 AD. This was somewhat resolved, but brought to the forefront the differences in the Coptic Church, which eventually broke ranks with the Byzantine churches during the Chalcedon Council in 451 AD.
The next paragraphs are referenced as questions. So why bring up the subject related to Peter, Paul, and James? Working backwards from the council in Jerusalem, it is noted that Peter never exercised any real authority. In actuality, the attending apostles discussed the issues of Paul's teaching to the Gentiles versus those teachings of Peter to the Jewish community and his attitude towards the Gentiles. Bottom line, the group told Peter he must restrict himself to the teachings of the Jewish Christians. Why did Peter not exert his authority as reputed head of the church? This definitely shows that the church was split into two sects even before the death of the apostles. It also shows that they operated as a set of equals. When Matthias was voted in by lots to replace Judas, why was there even a vote? This sounds a whole lot like a decision of equals. Why did Paul indicate in his writings that James and Peter co-shared some sort of authority, as discussed previously? Paragraphs 2 and 3 seem to affirm that the apostles operated as a group of equals. Paragraph 1 and much of the previous discussion seem to indicate each individual church acted in a fairly autonomous manner, with many differences in operations, teachings, rubrics, and took into account differences in culture. The result that we must take away from these discussions of unity versus unification is the historical fact that religious and political differences existed in the church from the time of the apostles onwards. Both of the councils, Nicaea and Chalcedon, made the first attempts at standardization and unification of disparate practices over the factions of the time. This attempt at unification and standardization never ever bore fruit, and the failures therein festered until the Great East-West Schism of 1054 A.D.